You've always had what it takes to make it happen. And we know the right tools can make it easier. At Strayer University, we're always thinking about new ways to set you up for success. That's why we give you a brand new laptop when you enroll in a bachelor's program. So you can start off on the right foot and keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Eligibility rules, restrictions, and exclusions apply. Connect with us for details. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by Chef. Before we begin, a special thanks to this week's sponsor, BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com for more information. Listeners, if you told me I would create multiple standalone episodes where someone met a cruel and untimely end due to a hit-and-run accident, I would not have believed you. Yet here we are, just over halfway through 2019, and we have another case covering a bizarre, unresolved death due to a hit-and-run accident. The first hit-and-run story covered this summer took place in Traverse City. That was episode 116, released on January 1st, 2019, the death of Kelly Boyce Hurlbert. This week's case takes us to Midland, Michigan, a place that we've been before, the home of Dow Chemical. It's December of 1991, just a couple of weeks before Christmas, and Gregory McRoberts is spending time with his fiancée, Amy, and their daughter, Tia, preparing for the holidays. Amy and Greg began dating just two years earlier, when she was 19 years old. Greg's fiancée is pregnant with their second child, and Amy fondly remembers the last day that she had with Greg. He was in good spirits. They'd spent the morning Christmas shopping, and while the couple was struggling financially, they were young and they were in love. The future seemed bright and full of promise. And it was on that mild December Thursday that Greg was listening to music, a song by Ozzy Osbourne, or perhaps a track from Ozzy's band, Black Sabbath. He was into the music and telling Amy about it, asking her to listen, to the lyrics, the rhythm. He was cheerful, upbeat. A bit after 5 p.m., Greg left the home in Amy's car. He needed to buy cigarettes and make a phone call. The trailer that the family called home did not have a phone line, and this was a few years before the advent of affordable cellular technology. While he was out, the car broke down. Greg was good with his hands, and he knew he could fix the vehicle, so he returned home on foot. He told Amy what happened and that he would fix the car. He'd take care of it. Greg collected some tools and left again, this time on his bicycle. It's worth mentioning that Greg did not have his own car, so he used Amy's vehicle, or, more frequently, he used his bicycle to get around town. He was known to ride his bike all over, even in cold weather. He used the bike to get to and from his job at the local Big Lots store. Come with me to a mild December day in 1991, when 24-year-old Gregory McRoberts, a son, a father, and a partner, leaves the home he shares with his pregnant fiancée, never to be seen alive again. And listeners, if I can speak plainly, at the end of 1991, Greg McRoberts was working hard at getting his shit together. Like a lot of guys in their early 20s, he made a couple of missteps along the way. Nothing serious, mind you, but he knew it was time to get right and plan for his future and the future of his young family. It wasn't about him anymore. There were other people to consider. Greg and Amy had a young daughter, 
and the couple was expecting a second child in the spring of 1992. While they were going through what some might call a lean period, Greg was dedicated to Amy and their daughter, Tia. He confided in his friends at work that he was excited about the arrival of a second child. He loved his family. He wanted to do right by them, to be the best partner, the best father, and the best man that he could be for those who counted on him. His own family was a good example of love, support, and hard work. His parents, Richard and Deanna, had recently celebrated their 25th wedding anniversary, a happy marriage that produced four children, Pamela, Thomas, Mark, and Greg. The McRoberts worked hard, his dad at the local service station, and in addition to keeping the home and raising four children, mom worked at a local restaurant. So when Amy's car broke down, it was late afternoon on Thursday, and Greg left the car in a parking lot, walked home, where he collected the tools that he needed to make the repair, and then he headed out again, this time on his bike. By the time he got on the road headed back to the car, it was full dark. Remember, it's December in Michigan, so the sun goes down pretty early. While Greg rode back to the disabled vehicle, Amy waited for him to return. Their young daughter, Tia, toddled about the house, waiting on her daddy to come back. Amy was hoping the baby would stay up long enough for Greg to kiss her goodnight, but when he wasn't back in time, she changed the little girl into pajamas and tucked her back in her crib. Since their home was without a phone, Amy couldn't call anyone to check on Greg or offer him a hand. She may have figured that the car repair was taking longer than expected. Eventually, Amy fell asleep, and when she woke up, it was after 11 o'clock and Greg wasn't back. It was late, and she was worried. What if he was stuck? What if he'd gone to the bar? Amy dressed the baby and slipped on a warm coat. There was snow on the ground, and it was dark and cold outside. Amy left the house and headed for the road. She intended to walk all the way to the Silver Inn where Greg told her the car was. As Amy reached Meridian Road, a chill came over her. She was frightened. Amy looked up the long, dark road and then back toward her house. Her tiny daughter snuggled against her. Amy turned around and went back to their place. She didn't know where Greg was, but something told her it could wait until morning. When the sun came up on Friday, December 13, 1991, there was no sign of Greg or his bike. The family car wasn't back, neither was her partner, Tia's daddy. Perhaps he went to his parents' home or ran into a friend. Amy thought maybe Greg would return that morning, but he didn't. She asked a neighbor if she could use their phone to call Greg's parents and see if he was there, but the McRoberts had not seen or heard from their son. On Monday, Greg's brother filed a missing persons report with the Midland County Sheriff. Law enforcement began a search for 24-year-old Greg McRoberts. Amy's car was located at the Silver Creek Inn on South Meridian in Midland. There was no sign of Greg, and the repairs he intended to make were not complete. Greg's parents, siblings, friends, they were all contacted. Had anyone seen him? But the answer, time and again, was no. At first, some considered that maybe Greg had run off, the responsibilities of home and family too much for a young guy. Amy didn't believe it. She thought back to the two of them, spending time with their daughter, listening to music, how happy Greg seemed. 
He'd shown no sign of agitation or displeasure, and he was excited about the arrival of their second child. His parents, Richard and Deanna, did not believe Greg would abandon Amy or his daughter. They knew their son wasn't perfect, but for him to up and leave, that was completely out of character. So the days ticked by, one after the other. Deanna, Greg's mom, kept two bottles of Coca-Cola in the fridge, one for her and one for Greg, because her son would stop by to visit and the two would have a Coke while they chatted. And she knew that day would come again and she wanted to be ready, but her heart was heavy with fear and worry about her blue-eyed, fair-haired son. Christmas Day arrived, the family gathered to exchange gifts, and there was no sign of Greg. Listeners, I have to wonder, did they know? When Greg wasn't there for the holiday, did they know that he would not return? That there wouldn't be another Christmas with Amy and Tia? There wouldn't be another chat over a Coca-Cola with his mom? That Greg McRoberts was not coming home? 1992 arrived, a new year, but it was gray and dark for those who loved and missed him. Greg's family and friends were still searching for him, tracing the route he must have taken on his bicycle that Thursday night. January 4th, 1992 was unseasonably warm, with temperatures approaching 50 degrees. Of course, it's Michigan in January, so it's overcast and gray, and snow, well, there's always a threat of that. But this day was different. Someone spotted something out of place in a ditch along Meridian Road. Upon closer examination, the something was a someone. The body of a man next to a bicycle, in the ditch, by the road. 24-year-old Greg McRoberts, brother, son, father, and partner, he was no longer missing. As listeners of this podcast, I know you enjoy true crime stories that evoke curiosity and emotion. Sometimes you want TV, not a podcast. So I'm recommending a new type of documentary streaming service called Magellan TV. Founded by filmmakers, Magellan TV's team of producers and curators created a collection of premium ad-free content, diving into diverse subjects and interests like history, science, space, nature, and of course, true crime. With over 1,500 documentary movies, series, and executive playlists, and new content arriving regularly, I'll never run out of things to watch. While looking through the Magellan TV app, I immediately found a documentary that piqued my interest, Parachute Murder Plot. This documentary tells the story of Victoria Cellier, who jumped out of an airplane at 4,000 feet, something she'd done over 2,000 times before, but this time was different. Her parachute didn't open, and she came crashing down to the ground. Victoria survived, and soon found out someone had tried to kill her for the second time. I won't spoil the story for you. You'll have to watch for yourself. This is just one of the many unique titles I found. Listeners, join me in watching documentaries anywhere, anytime by starting your two-month free trial of Magellan TV. Go to MagellanTV.com slash gone to take advantage of their 1,500 documentary movies, series, and executive playlists. That's MagellanTV.com slash gone for two months free. Don't miss this opportunity to discover new documentaries and true crime content that I know we've all been looking for.
The ditch along Meridian Road where his body was found was between his home and where his disabled car was left at the Silver Creek Inn. It appeared that Greg was fatally struck by a vehicle, sending him and his bicycle into the ditch. The location of Greg's remains immediately raised red flags for his loved ones and the community. Meridian Road is a well-traveled path, particularly by those local to Midland. How could both his body and his bike have been there nearly a month, but no one saw or noticed anything? Greg's family planned a funeral, and the community started whispering. A low rumble of rumors and speculation that would dominate the talk about Greg's case for more than a decade. At the time of his death, Greg's daughter was about 16 months old, and his son was not born yet. Greg Jr., who goes by Scott, would arrive later in 1992. A blessing for the family who missed Greg terribly, but difficult and unfair to the little boy who would never know his father or know how loved and wanted he was by his namesake. After Greg's body was found, the rumor mill went into high gear. Word on the street was that Greg was targeted, that he was intentionally struck by a car. Perhaps his payback for some slight, something real or perceived, that someone followed Greg and hit him on purpose. These rumors were hard to hear, but the next bit of speculation was even worse. People were saying that Greg wasn't killed in the accident, that his body and his bike left alongside Meridian Road, the same route they knew he would take from his home to the Silver Inn where the car waited for repair. They could not have been there for nearly a month without being seen. You see, the area had been searched in the days after the accident and no one saw Greg's body or his bike. Talk was that the person who struck Greg must have stopped, loaded Greg's bike and Greg's body into their own vehicle, and transported him from the scene. Then, they hid Greg's body for weeks, later returning the bike and the remains to the location where the accident took place. One of these rumors was fueled by the idea that Greg survived the accident and that the person or persons who struck him tried to save him. They tried to nurse him back to health. But, listeners, Greg was killed almost instantly. There was little substance to these rumors, but it didn't stop them from taking hold. People were suspicious of each other. Could that be the person who hit Greg and then hit his body? Who would do that? Where was his body held? And why return him to the site later? Was it guilt? Was it something else? This unfounded speculation ran rampant, and it was hurtful. The rumors not only harmed Greg's loved ones, who wondered why anyone would be so cruel as to conceal him, they also harmed the investigation into his death. Police chased leads generated by the rumors, leads that took them nowhere but ate up time and resources. It was a frustrating situation, and one that persisted for years. People would call in tips about who held Greg after the accident, tips about bloodstained cars or abandoned farms. Police dutifully investigated each tip and ruled them out. I am here to put this rumor to bed, hopefully for good. Greg was killed almost instantly. Had the person who struck him or had another passerby stop to help Greg, they would have learned that he was dead, the accident knocking the life out of his young, healthy body. Even if the person who hit Greg stopped immediately to render aid, it would not have helped. The injuries Greg sustained in the accident were not compatible with life.
Greg's body was never removed from the scene. He was not taken to a private home or to a barn or a shed along with his bicycle. Greg McRoberts died on December 12, 1991, and his body waited to be discovered. It waited patiently and silently in a deep ditch alongside Meridian Road. His family and loved ones would have to wait more than a decade before there would be a real break in Greg's case, something that kicked the investigation and the rumor mill into high gear once again. And this break came in the form of a letter mailed to Greg's parents' home, a two-page letter, neatly typed. We are going to read through the letter in its entirety. Please pay special attention to the contents because they are an important part of this case and of Greg's story. To the family of Greg McRoberts. You do not know me, and I have never met you. But I need to confess to something that has been heavy on my heart for a long time. I was driving the car that hit and killed Greg. I was traveling southbound on Meridian Road. He was traveling north. I don't know why, but he was riding his bike in my lane. There are small wood guardrails there that are very close to the road. He may have thought I was farther away than I really was because I only had one headlight. Or maybe he was just not paying attention. I have no way of knowing. All I do know is that I did not see him until it was too late. I tried to avoid him, but he slammed into the right passenger side of my vehicle. I panicked and fled. I know it was the wrong thing to do. I counted on the cars behind me stopping and helping him. I did not stop and did not know the outcome until a month later, my neighbor told me that they had found him. That moment is etched on my memory and something inside of me died knowing what happened and the pain that I had caused. To leave a son, wife and children alone is an unthinkably painful realization. I am so sorry. Words cannot describe. I'll never forget that feeling, that hole it left in me. The guilt of my actions has many times brought me to desperation and crying in the years since that night. I just didn't want to believe that it happened. I've tried many ways to forget my actions and to drown my memory because then everything might be all right. I discovered that I could not take enough drugs or alcohol to cover the pain of my own guilt, but it just made me feel less worthwhile and made my own guilt worse. Hiding my actions has caused me to go into deep depression and attempt to escape myself with alcohol and drugs and the loss of my marriage. In fact, they became a prison of my own making. Nothing worked because no matter how hard I tried, you can't deny reality. In many ways, I wish I had turned myself in. I know that if I had turned myself in, I would have paid whatever price society would have deemed worthy and then maybe not have suffered with the guilt and shame through the years like I have. In time, I realized that I needed to make a change in my life. I started going through a 12-step program and getting in touch with a higher power. I ended up finding that higher power in a personal relationship with God. As I did that, I began to realize that I needed to deal with this one part of my life that I had for so long tried to forget. I needed to realize that the pain of the loss that I caused and the taking of his life doesn't leave me. I did not want to minimize in any way your pain over this loss you have suffered. 
I can only begin to imagine what you have had to go through in these years. It had to be even worse, not knowing exactly what happened or who was responsible. One time I was in Minnesota fishing with my brother. He was about 14 at the time. We were on a small island, about one and one-eighth acres in size, with a lot of steep rocks that went down into the water. All of a sudden, he came up missing. I had this terrible gut-wrenching feeling that he had slipped into the water and went off the drop-off. I'll never forget that feeling, that hole it left in me. It brought me to desperation and crying and panic. That incident had haunted me because it was short-lived as I learned soon that he was all right. I have many times realized that you must have experienced that feeling over and over through the years. Writing this letter is a witness to this fact. I saw a lawyer a short time ago as I tried to get my life back in order to turn myself in, and he advised me that the statute of limitations had passed, and I should just forget it and go on with my life. Somehow I just cannot do that. I have come to realize that to take his advice, to try and just forget doesn't work, and to not care is to not free oneself to live. I feel like to be comfortable about just living and enjoying life as if nothing happened after you have taken a life is like living in contempt of that life. After much thought and counsel and prayer, I at least needed to do this one thing, to write you and to confess to you and to give you the circumstances of your son's death. I cannot give value to my life if I do not value the life of others, especially Greg's. I'm making sure of one thing, though, because I'm alive and I know that I don't deserve it. I have made a commitment to God that I will seek to create and do as much good and help save as many lives as I can and make a positive impact on the world. I feel I owe you and the world that. I've come to realize that time is so short and you have only so many opportunities. So I'm not just living for my life. I'm living for your son, too. Because he did matter, and he still does matter greatly. In the last few years, I have come to realize that someone else has died because of me. Jesus Christ. My responsibility is to now live worthy of that incredible price. I fear that this note will cause you much pain. That is not my hope. Saying that I am sorry seems too inadequate, yet I want to help us both bring some kind of closure to what was an unimaginable tragedy for you and a lifelong burden of guilt for me. I know that nothing I can say or do can ever repay the life that was taken. I do want you to know that I refuse to take my actions lightly. I will live with the pain of my own actions for the rest of my life. I refuse to not accept responsibility for my actions. Please accept this letter as one of the steps that I am taking to make payment for my actions and to take responsibility for my past. I pray for you almost daily. And I pray that you will find the peace that I am seeking and have begun to find in this confession. I do not know what will come of this effort on my part. I fear that I have caused more pain than help for you. I cannot even begin to imagine that you will have anything but contempt for me. I didn't reveal this till now because I did not want to reopen old wounds and cause you even more pain. But a friend of mine told me through experiences that it was really important for you to have some kind of closure on this. If this does cause you more pain, I am deeply sorry. I want to ask for your forgiveness. However, I also know that this might not be possible. If you need to respond to this confession on my part, good or bad, 
you may put an ad in the personal section of the Midland Daily News from Greg's family. In many ways, this letter was a gift for Greg's family. It was helpful to know what happened that night, how their son, partner, and father died. It was helpful to know the circumstances of the accident, that there was a real person behind the crash that took Greg from them. But the letter, it didn't alleviate the rumors that somehow Greg survived the accident. Once again, people were talking that Greg was taken from the scene by the letter writer, that Greg was concealed, that his body was hidden and later returned to the site. And Greg's parents were torn. The letter seemed genuine, but the McRoberts were filled with conflict. Was the writer telling the truth in his heartfelt words? Was Greg's death really an accident? And his body and his bike were on the side of the road for weeks afterwards? Or were the rumors true? There is only one person who can answer that question, because only the letter writer knows what happened that night. Greg's parents weren't alone in their conflicted feelings. Once again, people were talking, they were speculating, and they were calling law enforcement with their thoughts about what happened. And the Midland County Sheriff's detectives ran down each lead when it came in. At the time, Amy, along with Greg's two children, read the letter, and like Greg's parents, they want to know more about that night, particularly regarding the rumors of Greg being taken from the scene after the accident. The McRoberts family hopes their letter writer will contact them once more to give them the peace that they seek. When the letter was received, Greg's surviving siblings tried to comfort and console their parents, but it was not to be. And the years after the letter arrived, Greg's father was diagnosed with cancer, and he passed away in 2016. So Greg's family is still hoping for more information about his death. They would like to know all the details of that night, and they hope that the letter writer, who shared so much with them in 2005, will surface again to put the rumors to rest once and for all. Listeners, Greg's family, they're not alone in struggling to come to terms with Greg's death. That's clear from the contents of that letter. The letter writer's words will let them live in peace, knowing that Greg didn't suffer, that he was there on Meridian Road the whole time, that the letter writer, who is doing so much to live a good life, to work their program, that the writer will continue to do their important recovery work by making themselves available to those who knew and loved Greg McRoberts. If you are from the Midland area, or if you lived there at the time of the accident, you may recognize the letter writer, the man who yearns to live a better life for himself and for Greg's memory. The writer is likely a Midland native, or at a minimum lived there in the early 1990s. It is thought that at the time of the accident, the writer was driving a late model Oldsmobile, model years 1982 to 1986. Specifically, an Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme or Cutlass Supreme Brome. Perhaps it was light blue in color, but the vehicle could have been red or beige. At the time of the accident, one of the headlights was not working. You can see photos of a similar vehicle posted on our website at www.alreadygonepodcast.com. From the letter, we know that the writer has a brother, that the writer has spent time in Minnesota, that they've worked a 12-step program and may still be in recovery and or have a sponsor. The writer could themselves be a sponsor to a person or persons working the program. The writer is divorced. 
or was divorced at one point and could be a particularly religious or devoted Christian. Greg's family would like to connect with the letter writer and finally be free from the rumors that have surrounded this incident and plagued his family. Greg's partner, the mother of his two children, she passed away in September of 2017. Amy and Greg are finally together again. If you are the letter writer, or if you know who this person is, you can call Crime Stoppers at 1-800-422-5245. You can also contact the Midland County Sheriff's Office at 989-839-4621. If you want to talk about the case, please join our Facebook group, the Already Gone Podcast Discussion Group, or you can leave a comment on our website at www.alreadygonepodcast.com. You can find me, Nina Instead, on Twitter at AlreadyGonePod. I also have an Instagram under my name, Nina Instead. If you like cases with a Michigan focus, check out my deep dive into the Oakland County child murders. Don't talk to strangers. Special thanks goes out to Chuck Walters for giving voice to the letter writer this week. If you don't know Chuck, you can find him on the Spy Stories podcast, among others. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind Already Gone. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. Mm-hmm.